Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Okay. Well, welcome to Foothills Christian Church. I'm so happy to be in your living room right now. I just want you to know you were kind of realizing that, yes, it is true. I have a face made for radio. (laughs) I hear the rumble of laughter throughout the Treasure Valley and across the globe. No, today, I just want to let you know that we are currently in our series, Boot Camp Family Challenge. It's number five, and I have a bunch of notes for this message, and I'd like you to know how to get these notes real quick. Uh, What you can do is you can download our phone app and take out your mobile device, either your iPad or your tele or your smartphone or whatever they call them today, and go to your app store and then just download, uh, search for Foothills Boise and download it. Now, once you do that, if you'll notice when you open the app up, Uh, This is a dynamic screen, but if you go to the bottom, it'll say Sunday. Click on Sunday, and then you can see the message notes. Click on that. Go down to boot camp number five. Click on that, and boom. There's all the notes, and you can also actually fill in the blanks right there on your mobile device while I'm preaching, okay? Now, today's uh, title of this message is How to Face Uncertain Times with Your Family, And the purpose of your family is to be a team that faces adversity together. And today we're going to talk about how your family can do this. How do you strengthen your family, bond your family, protect your family, lead and guide your family? And how we're going to do this is by going to the Bible and seeing how God's church was meant to be a family. So by looking at biblical principles, then we're going to see how they apply specifically to our lives, okay? So the church was meant to be a family, and you are now with your family, whether you're one or whether you're 10. You're with your family right now, especially your biological, immediately family, uh, unless you're just by yourself. That's okay, too. We, what we want to do is we want to make sure that you understand that more than that, you are part of a bigger family. You're a part of God's family. Let me read some scripture for you real quick. This is from Ephesians. It's from chapter 2, and it begins with verse 19. Here's what it says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And the saints is the word that the early church used for people who were uh, born again. They were saved. They were redeemed. They were in the family of God. And listen to what the next phrase says. You are a part of God's household. So you're a part of his house. You are a part of his family. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So you are not a stranger. You are not an alien. Now, on your notes, there is a place to fill this in. 
then I would like everybody out there in every watch party, every living room, if you're by yourself with your mobile device, or you're here in the room with me right now, is I would like you to say something along with me. I'll say it, and then I want you to repeat it. Here it is. I am not alone. I am a part of God's family. Say it with me. I am not alone. I am part of God's family. Let's do that one more time. I am not alone. I am part of God's family. That's right. You are a part of God's family. And right now, all of our earthly families are in shock. What we're experiencing right now is probably one of the greatest global disruptions that you could imagine. We have no idea how far the impact of this virus will go. It's one thing to have your kids out from school. It's another when industries are shut down, people lose their jobs, money dries up, and people are without means. It can be devastating. We all know this, that no matter how bad things are going to get, we only have one question, and that is, will I face this all on my own, every man for himself, or will I face this as a family? You see, my friends, right now is one of the most critical times that you can imagine. The only way that we're going to survive this is if we come together as a family. And I don't just mean your immediate biological family. I mean your church family. When you look back throughout 2,000 years of history, you see the church family face all kinds of massive tragedies, disruptions, war, all kinds of things. And the only way that those followers of Christ survived and then became great leading ministers and influencers to the world around them is when they bonded together as God's family and faced the challenge together. So this is what I want you to think about today. And that is how the family of God faces an uncertain future and how the family of God can instruct and teach you and your family how to bond together during this time. Now, just a quick brief history, okay? The church was started on the day of Pentecost. Penta meaning 50 or 5, and it's the 50 days after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus ascended into heaven, and then he told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and pray. There were about 120 of them praying in an upper room. And then on the 50th day, the day of Pentecost, there was a massive, massive crowd in Jerusalem for a feast. What happened is the Holy Spirit descended, and Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and preaches the first evangelistic message. Thousands of people come to the Lord in salvation, and they start the church. So latter part of Acts chapter 2 says what they started to do. And this is very important because at that time, the Jewish leaders didn't want the church around. They were trying to stamp it out. They persecuted it heavily. The Jewish people were under the oppressive rulership of Rome at that time. And so there was all this uncertainty. Nobody knew what was going to happen next. And so 
What we see in this situation is what the early church did as a family to bond together and face an uncertain future. And these are lessons that you can apply to your family right now, today. So let's jump in and see what they are. We're gonna begin by reading the scriptures, Acts chapter two, beginning with verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, before I go on, I just wanted to share with you real quick that some people have tried to take this passage of scripture out of context and use it to support uh, that Christians are supposed to be like communes, support the political ideology of communism. And that's just a total misreading and understanding of the text. If you were a Jewish person and you were reading this in the first century, the way you would understand this is very simple. And that is, is everyone started to act like a family. They, they came together, and if somebody in the family needed something, someone else, if they had to sell something to help them meet that need, then that's what they would do. It's not any type of affirmation of a political or government ideology. It's a, just about how individuals treated one another. And it wasn't that Christians aren't allowed to own things. We see in Acts chapter 5, where Peter is addressing the problem of Ananias and Sapphira, he specifically says, when you owned it, you could do whatever you wanted with it. So there was no requirement. What this means is simply that the early church acted like a family and started to pull together and meet one another's needs and love. Let's go on. He says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we see here is the early church becoming immediately a family and because of that, they started to bond together and face all of these changes in uncertain times. So let's go through four basic things that they did that made a huge difference in them moving and going or growing towards a stronger family in God's household, okay? Number one, in verse 42, it says, they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, whether we realize it or not, we are in one of the most affluent periods in history. As a matter of fact, you're experiencing it right now. See, right now, I am in your living room, sorry about that, preaching, and you're able to access it through streaming online. This is a tremendous technology. That didn't exist 30 years ago, but it exists now. So we live in one of the most affluent times in human history. And what that does is that causes us to focus on immediate stuff right here and right now. And what we do is when we're focusing on the immediate, when we're living in an affluent time, is that we begin to forget what is truly most important, and we begin to ignore the point and purpose of our lives. This is a massive disruption. And what that does is that presents us an opportunity 
when we see what's really going on right now, all the externalities are stripped away. And when externalities are stripped away, you know what happens? We, we start to reveal internally what is most valuable to us. And the things we start to care about the most, the things that we really start to, to have passion about, the things that we really focus on is our family in the loving relationships that we have with those people. That's, that's revealing to us that what's most important is what the early church started to practice. You see, what they were doing is they were uh, devoting themselves to the uh, apostles' teaching. They were stripping away all the externalities, and they were focusing on the most important thing of all, and that is the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, the early of the apostles in the early church were not teaching Old Testament stuff. They were teaching the witness of Jesus, what he said, what he did, the miracles he performed, and where he did them. He, they were giving the witness of Jesus Christ. We see this later on in the New Testament. We'll address that in a moment. But the apostles' teaching was the witness of Jesus. My friends, when things get really, really bad and things get stripped away and all of our affluence makes no difference anymore, guess what? It's only by focusing on Jesus Christ, the witness of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, that we can overcome the fear and anxiety of an uncertain future. The testimony of Jesus is your greatest, your greatest weapon against fear. Why? Because fear is a result of the past and past experiences. Fear tries to take over and cloud our judgment. But when you devote yourself to the testimony of Jesus, you're giving the tools to overcome fear. Fear is so powerful. I, I want you to watch a video real quick from a neuroscientist that tells you all about the nature of fear, and then we're gonna see how the apostles' teaching counters that fear. Let's watch. Fear is a conscious awareness that you're in danger. We don't have a fear system, a fear circuit in our brain. We have defense circuits, thermoregulatory circuits, eating circuits, and so forth. All of these can make us feel fearful or anxious. They can also, uh, many of them can also make us feel pleasure. What we feel is cognitively constructed in our brains on the basis of certain non-conscious ingredients that are put together. The brain is processing what that stimulus is. Uh, that stimulus at the same time is going into the brain, triggering memories that you may have about past events with that stimulus. As a child, you begin to learn certain facts about experiences. You learn that in a situation where your heart is beating fast uh, and there's some stimulus that someone has told you is, is a source of danger, you now begin to feel fear because when you were very young, your parents may have said, oh, you must have been so afraid when you saw that snake. And you begin to categorize or build up these catalogs of experiences. These, are, these kinds of things are fear experiences. So your brain is processing the image of the snake and creating a representation of that. That representation is going to memory systems, retrieving memories that you have of experiences you may have had with snakes, or just facts you know about snakes, that they're reptiles, that they're dangerous, and so forth. So these things are beginning to coalesce in consciousness into a cognitive 
kind of consciousness. There's no emotion there at this point because it's just perception and memory. Now, the emotion begins to come when the consequences of activating the defense system are happening at the same time. So in addition to creating a perceptual representation and a memory representation, the, the threat is also going to the amygdala. It's also activating the so-called arousal systems of the brain that increase alertness and attention to the environment. Because of this, the attention is now focused on that snake. Based on the sensory stimulus, the memory uh, about that stimulus in the past, the fact that your defense system is aroused and kind of causing your heart to beat fast and so forth, the fact that you've activated a schema of fear because you know that snakes are dangerous in a cold cognitive sense, all of that is now coming together in your mind in a, a kind of workspace of the mind called working memory where it all comes together as fear. Well, there you have it. That's the neuroscience of fear. And I want you to re recall two things that he said. First thing is that you actually don't have a fear center in your brain. What you have is you have all these data centers that take all this data in. The second thing he said is that we have a memory center. And what is, is that from very, very early on, we begin to collect these memories and experiences. And then that is where the emotion is associated with the data coming in. So, what does that mean for you today? Well, what that means is this, is that the apostles teaching the witness of Jesus, talking about who he is, knowing who he is, knowing what he said, how to look at life, how to perceive life, what it does is it begins to transform and rewire all of these past experiences that we have that bring about fear and anxiety in our life. You see, the greatest antidote to fear is to focus on the witness of Jesus. Oftentimes, when things are going really, really, really well, we don't hear the voice of God. C.S. Lewis has a great quote that I really appreciate. He says, did you know that God only whispers to us in our pleasures? You see, when things are going great in an affluent culture, we can only barely hear the whisper of God. God speaks to us in our conscience, but God shouts, and he shouts very loud in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. My friends, in this moment, we're realizing that many in America over the last 50 years have turned away from God. We become deaf. And it's obvious that our world and this country no longer seeks God only in times of need with platitudes. We're, there's only one out of four people in America today who actually practice their Christian faith. Now, I don't believe that God has intentionally caused this virus. It's not his wrath being poured out upon us. Satan did. Satan is the liar, he's the deceiver, and he is the destroyer. However, because our world is turned away from God, there is no reservoir of strength. There is no spiritual tenacity. There is no guidance to lead us through these dark situations. Jesus Christ himself said, you will have troubles in this world, but be at peace for I have overcome the world. We may have tactics, we may have strategies, but what ultimately our world lacks is a spiritual unity bonding us together. You see this in the way people are trying to just hoard. You see this, people 
fighting over things in grocery stores. You see this in the way that people are taking advantage of the situation. Price gouging, all of these types of things are a result of a hyper-individualistic, dog-eat-dog, every-man-for-himself world. How does your family counter that? How do you not succumb to that radical rejection of everybody else, but see your family bond together and still see the kingdom of God operate according to the will and purpose of God. You do it by devoting yourself to the witness of Jesus, the apostles' teaching. When you are devoted to the teaching of scriptures, you're being devoted to your purpose as a family. You are being devoted to the meaning that drives your family forward. You are able to care righteously for your family while at the same time maintaining kindness and mercy and grace. If you're gonna survive, if you're gonna thrive in the midst of the coronavirus storm, then devote yourself to the apostles' teaching because the witness of Jesus is the only answer that can bond your family and the kingdom of God together and let us not be ruled by fear. That's the first way that the early followers faced an uncertain future. Now let's look at number two. The second thing that happened is you can see that the uh, early church devoted themselves to fellowship. So I would like to read a passage of scripture for you so that you can see exactly what fellowship is that they devoted themselves to. Let's go to the Bible. In the first epistle of John, we see John the apostle towards the end of his life writing some very important words. And he starts off his very first letter that he wrote to the church. And in verse three, he talks about what fellowship really is. And it says this, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Now this tells us what the apostles' teaching was, is it was a proclamation of what the apostles had seen and heard about Jesus. Look at what he then goes on to say. We, so that you may also have what? Fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, do you see that the flavor of fellowship here is different? The first thing you have to realize is that the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. And what the apostle says is that it's the witness of Jesus that we proclaimed that now puts us in fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that now we are in a covenantal partnership with God and with one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not only bound together by a common faith, but because we are now adopted into the household of God, we are in a covenantal partnership with one another. This is really, really important. And the reason why is because it's designed to meet every need of the human heart. What does that mean? Well, over the last 2,000 years, the Bible has taught that we have basic needs. Today, research is proving the Bible to be true. First of all, we have physical needs. You see this, uh, everybody's like, oh my goodness, do we have enough food? Are we going to have water? And the big thing, I'm not sure why, but there was a run on toilet paper 
And so people are really like, we need lots and lots of toilet paper. Now, for what reason? I'm not quite sure. I mean, I know why we need toilet paper. That's not my point. But why do we need to stockpile it? I'm not quite sure. But we have more than just physical needs of sleep, eating, food, and toilet paper. We have emotional needs. And emotional needs get lost when you have to isolate and self-quarantine. Did you know you have intellectual means, uh, needs and you also have spiritual needs? These needs are very important so that a human being not only survives but can thrive. So the Bible's been teaching this for 2,000 years. Now, what does that mean for you? Well, it means that fellowship with Jesus, fellowship with your immediate family, and then fellowship with your church family is critical. It's critical for you to find the strength and the guidance to navigate these uncertain times. Fellowship with one another is the backbone of how the Holy Spirit moves through us. It's how God guides us. It's how God moves us, directs us, leads us, and empowers his people. Christianity is not a Lone Ranger sport. It's meant to be a family bound together through the power of the Holy Spirit, the testimony of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because we are connected to God now, not only is our individual family sustained and every need is met, so is the body of Christ. So how can you practice fellowship when you're in isolation? Well, we started, not quite a year ago, a thing called the principle of the five. Well, what is the principle of the five? Well, let me tell you what the principle of the five is. We first started with the staff, and we talked to the staff and said, you know what we're going to do is we want you to call and reach out to five people every week. You know, maybe find a, a new person who just visited the church or met, or maybe somebody that you're, you have as a volunteer, or maybe somebody who need, has a need or something. Every week, I want you to call and reach out to five people. Shortly after that, I was uh, meeting with the men's leadership team. And there are about eight to 10 guys on the men's leadership team, all super sharp guys. And I said, you know what, guys, I would really like for you to practice a principle of five. And they were like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what the principle of five is, is that as men, you're called to disciple other men. If you read 2 Timothy 2.2, it says, find faithful men uh, that you can teach who will be able to teach others also. So that's the process of discipleship. And I said, I'd like you to come up with a list of five guys. And they go, okay, well, who do we put on there? And I go, well, put different people on there. Put a guy on there that you think is, could, you know, maybe he's mature in the faith and he could take the next step. Put some guys on there that you'd like to see grow closer to God. And then if you want, put somebody who's like really far away from God, a friend of yours, somebody that you knew in college or you've met recently. And then what I want you to do is I want those five guys to be the guys that each week you pray over and you try to move closer to God maybe through a conversation or go out and, you know, go fishing together or do something together. But it's called the principle of five. And the essence of the principle of five is this, is that, hey guys, you can't change the whole world and you're not gonna be able to, you know, have all of this massive influence across all of these different dimensions, but you can make a difference in the lives of five guys. And guess what happened? Every one of those guys took that challenge. And then the fruit of their efforts of prayer, mentoring, and involvement has just been phenomenal to see how God has moved. 
So I'm asking everybody in the church, everybody who's a part of Foothills, to start your own list of five. Your family should have a list maybe of five other families. Or if you're all by yourself, just have five families, five individuals. It doesn't matter. Just get a list of five. And whether it's a single name or a family name, just each and every day ask yourself a simple question. And that is, how can I be in fellowship with these five names? How can I do that? If you want to be able to find meaning in the midst of this struggle, if you want to find hope in the middle of this nightmare, if you want to find strength in the midst of all this confusion and unknown, then make fellowship your top priority. The early church did it. The church over the last 2,000 years has done it. And now we have the opportunity to do it as well. Now, let's look at the third thing they did in Acts 2.42. It says that first, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, number two, to fellowship, and number three, the breaking of bread. What exactly is the breaking of bread? What is it? Well, scholars have debated this. They talk about it, and they usually argue over the minutia and the little details, but one thing they all agree on is this, is that it was more than just a meal where they sat down and ate. It was actually a ceremonial meal that celebrated the passion of the Christ. Now, what is the passion of the Christ? Well, the passion of the Christ is everything that Jesus went through from the time he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, betrayed by Judas, tortured by the chief priests in the Sanhedrin, taken before Pontius Pilate, uh, punished by Pontius Pilate, then ultimately uh, crucified on a cross before he rose from the dead. That's called the passion of the Christ. And this is what Christ had to go through in order for you and I to be set free. Now, there's a ceremonial meal that they ate that honored that. So how does that apply to your family? Well, this is how it applies to your family, is people devoted themselves to a significant reminder that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of their faith. You and your family need a significant reminder each and every day that Jesus Christ is your foundation. He is your rock. He is your Lord and Savior, King of Kings, the Lion of Judah. He is the only one who can bring you hope and salvation through this incredibly uncertain time in our history. Each and every day, your family, find a routine. It can be as short as 10 minutes. It can be as long as an hour. But make sure it is more than just, a, hey, let's bless God for the dinner. And it doesn't have to be a meal, but it has to be something where you remind yourself that Jesus Christ is our rock and our foundation. Finally, the fourth thing that the early church did to face uncertain times is found in their devotion to prayer. So my challenge for you is to develop a new prayer routine throughout this. Now, I could talk about the power of prayer. I could preach on the power of prayer. But I want you to know that whenever I hear Billy Graham talk about prayer, it sends shivers down my spine. So let's listen to what he has to say about the power of prayer. In this modern age in which we live, we've learned to harness the power of the atom. But very few of us have learned how to fully develop the power of prayer. We have not yet learned that a man is more powerful on his knees than behind the most powerful weapons we have ever developed. 
We've not learned that a nation is more powerful when it unites in earnest prayer to God. We have not discovered that the answer to our problems can be through contact with God. When the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Lord, teach us to pray, the Savior answered their request by giving them his model petition, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, however, was only the beginning of his sacred instruction. In scores of passages, Christ offered further guidance, and because he practiced what he preached, his whole life was a series of lessons on prevailing prayer. One of the most amazing things in all the scriptures is how much time Jesus took out for prayer. He only had three years of public ministry, yet Jesus was never in so big a rush. But what he had time to spend hours in prayer. He prayed before every difficult task confronting him. He prayed with regularity. Not a day began or closed on which he did not unfold his soul before his Father. How quickly and carelessly, by contrast, we pray. Snatches of memorized verses hastily spoken in the morning. Then goodbye, God, for the rest of the day until a few closing petitions at night. This is not the prayer program that Jesus outlined. Jesus pleaded long and repeatedly. It is recorded that he spent entire nights in fervent appeal. How little perseverance and persistence in pleading we show. The scripture says, pray without ceasing. This should be the motto of every true follower of Jesus Christ. Never stop praying, no matter how dark and hopeless your case may seem. Our Lord frequently prayed alone, separating himself from every earthly distraction. You Christians that are listening to my voice, select a room or a corner in your home or in your yard where you alone can regularly and privately meet God. That quiet, secluded soul to God praying in which you come to the mercy seat for divine blessing on your home and country can be the strongest secret weapon. Its most powerful spiritual defense can be prayer. Many of you do not know how to pray. Why don't you start today by saying, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. Let him forgive the past sins, transform your life, and make you a new person. He can do it today in answer to the simplest prayer. Well, there you have it, my friend. A new routine of prayer can change your life, and it can sustain you during these uncertain times. You know, that's what the early church did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. You know, it's interesting that word in Acts 2.42 says they devoted. It comes from a Greek word that basically means they had a single-minded focus. That's right, a single-minded focus. If you try to navigate your family through these uncertain times in a lackadaisical way with no intentionality and you're just kind of scattered in all your thoughts, it's not going to go well. The early church gives us the model. It gives us the tactics. It gives us the strategy and it gives us the attitude on how our faith can navigate this and that we're going to come through stronger than we could ever have imagined before. Come what may, come what may. And so let's follow their example. We are standing on the shoulders of giants. These are giants of faith. And now it's our time to grow a giant faith in the midst of these challenges. So as your church, here's what we're going to do, is we're going to be here for you. First and more foremost, each and every one of you who can self-quarantine should do it.
If you're in a vulnerable population, you need to stay at home. But email us. You can just email it to Doug at foothills.org and tell us if you need anything. If nothing else to help you pray. If you're at home self-quarantining, download the app. Go to the app store, download it on your phone or your iPad. Go to YouTube on your computer or your mobile device. Look up Foothills Boise and subscribe. We are doing a live video update every Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. We're bringing in experts. We're bringing in people from our church. Kim and I are hosting. If for no other reason, we want to be there in your living room or on your mobile device to let you know you're not alone. We are here with you. If you're in a small group, operable word small, then keep meeting. If you ever get sick, then please self-quarantine, drive yourself to St. Luke, St. Al's or Salzers. They will do a drive-through coronavirus test on you right then. Number three, our food pantry, our clothing pantry, our pastoral care, our prayer teams, our shepherding are going to continue. They are not offline, slowing down. They are ramping up. We've brought in tons more food. We're collecting more supplies. We want to make sure everybody who's in self-quarantine has everything they need. Number four, we're going to do a 21 prayer day prayer challenge. It starts tomorrow morning. In 21 days, I'm calling the church to pray. You need to access the prayer challenge through our phone app. So start there tomorrow morning, 21 day prayer challenge. Don't miss. Reach out to your family. Reach out to your friends. Develop that list of five. There are people right now who have no place to go, invite them to watch church with you online. Get it done and make it happen. So we want to see you involved in that. Now, finally, I want to close with my brother Harv, who's in the thick of it with me. He's just been a phenomenally great supporter. Love him to death. We've known each other for 35 years, and he's going to bring us to close today. Thank you, Pastor Harv. Oh, good. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.